Welcome to Really Specific Stories, Casey. It's fantastic to have you on the show. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. I am very, very excited and honored. I'm honored too. We're double honored. (laughs) Now, first question for every guest, and it's the same for you. Casey, how did you get into podcasts? Yeah, so um, it's probably covering a tiny bit of who I am because it's going to make the story make a little bit more sense. Uh, So my name is Casey Liss. Uh, I've been podcasting since 2013, uh, and I started with a dear friend of mine who I'd known since I was like 10 years old. And this is a gentleman by the name of Marco Arment. Uh, We met when we were kids, and we hung out when we were kids, and then we kind of fell apart and they're, you know, fell away from each other just as, you know, we, we didn't live close to each other. We would occasionally see each other over summers. We went our separate ways, not in an angry sense. And then, um, shortly after we both graduated college, uh, we got back in touch with each other and we, each of us blames the other for having done that in a good way. And I, I, I'm not sure if we ever really properly figured out which one was the, the originator, but anyways, Marco was, uh, again, a, a friend of mine when I was a kid. And then we rekindled that friendship shortly after college. And then a few years after that, he started a podcast with Dan Benjamin, called Build and Analyze. And that was about, you know, doing development work. And that was the kind of work that I do as well, or is the kind of work I do as well. And so I started listening to that. And that was the first podcast I really listened to. And then once I started listening to Build and Analyze, that got me into the greater five by five and, you know, Mark Warman podcasting universe. And so that's how I started listening was because my old friend uh, was was doing a podcast and, and I thought, well, shoot, I should pay attention to that, see if I like it, especially since it's about things that, that I tend to enjoy. And like I said, it spidered out from there. And then in terms of becoming a podcaster, um, he ended Build and Analyze in late 2012. And I had said to Marco, you know, hey, we should do a show about cars because we're both really enthusiastic about cars. Neither of us know that much about cars, but we're really enthusiastic about it. And so I said, we should do a show about cars. Marco had the presence of mind to ask uh, a friend of his who I'd become friendly with over the prior year to a gentleman by the name of John Syracuse, uh, who had also just ended a podcast, uh, the absolutely phenomenal uh, hypercritical at five by five, also with Dan Benjamin as the co-host. That while both of the both build and analyze and hypercritical had ended, and Marco said, "Well, you know what, John likes cars. Let's let's ask John to do it." And so the three of us started uh, a short-lived show called Neutral in January of 2013, which holy poop is almost 10 years ago now. <laughs> and then um, very briefly after that finish recording, you know, we would just goof off and talk about nerdy stuff because that's what three nerds do. John does similar work to what we do. And Marco, again, had the presence in mind of releasing this on SoundCloud as in as just like, oh, listen to this stuff we talked about after Neutral, uh, the car show. And it turns out three computer dorks talking about cars, nobody really cared. Three computer dorks talking about computers, that actually had some legs. And so that was how the Accidental Tech Podcast was born, hence the name as well. And uh, we started taking that seriously in like March or April of 2013. And we're on episode like 507 or something like that. What, I don't know what we recorded last night, something like that. Uh, we are up to many, many, many episodes of ATP. Um, and it's still going strong almost 10 years later. And, and I'm hopeful that that will continue. Uh, 508 was last night. Uh, and I hope that will continue for 10 more years, if not more than that. But we shall see. 
I don't know. That was probably a very self-involved answer to the question, but I felt like it, it's it's kind of me in a nutshell, both in the consumer and producer side. Hopefully that's okay. Well, you don't have to worry about sounding self-involved because you are the guest and it is your story. So that's what it's all about. <laughs> still, still, you know, I, I want to be, I, I want to be cognizant that, uh, that, you know, I'm just a regular, I'm a regular schmo. I'm, I don't feel like I'm anybody special. All good. Now, that's a great summary. Mm-hmm. I'm really interested in this early stage where you said 2013, because 2013 is, you know, a good while ago now in terms of podcasting. You said you've had over 500 <laughs> episodes. That's a great milestone, a great achievement. Mm-hmm. But no doubt you were aware of podcasts before this time and your entry through 5 by 5 and Build and Analyze and everything you said with Marco. What was your appreciation of podcasting as a medium at that time? And what were you kind of listening to? Was it tied to the community of tech that you're still into now or was it something else? Yeah. So I, I was aware of podcasts before I started listening to to build and analyze, but it just, there was never any podcast that like grabbed me and said, oh, you should listen to this. Uh, and not to say that that didn't exist. It's just, I was never, I guess I was never exposed to one. Um, this is many years before, like serial, for example, was a thing, and and not to say that true crime is like my particular uh, flavor of mm-hmm. podcasting, but nevertheless, you know, it's something that was universally popular. And like, I don't know, uh, I don't remember when ninety nine pi started, a ninety nine percent invisible, which is a really really great podcast. Um, that that's probably of around that era. I, I'm quickly trying to look. Oh, in twenty fourteen, never mind twenty. Yeah, so twenty fourteen it began its fourth season. So yeah. I think 99PI could have grabbed me in, in a way, because I still listen to that to this day, in a way that Build and Analyze actually did. But again, it was one of those things where I just never found anything that I that I felt like, oh, I need to participate or, or, or consume this. And, you know, when I was at work, I would listen to music, and I, and I still often do listen to music when I'm working, but uh, it was having a person that I knew and in talk with that was doing a show, that's what made that's that was my entry point. That's what made me really, really interested in it. And then once I started listening to a tech show on Five by Five, and Five by Five, whether or not you feel like there there's as much to it now, certainly in its heyday, which was right around this time, for nerds on the internet, especially nerds on the internet that were interested in Apple and and you know peripheral companies and, and technologies. I would say that five by five was like our stuff. It was, it was where we wanted to be, to participate in the chat room, to listen. Um, and all of these shows were so, so, so good, you know, back to work with Merlin Mann. Uh, the talk show at this point was with Dan Benjamin on five by five again, hypercritical, uh, even though it was a sort of kind of a news show, it it holds up. You know, I, every great once in a while, I'll listen to an old episode and, and it holds up to this day. And this was from 2012, if I'm not mistaken. These were all phenomenal shows. And once you start spidering into things that are kind of ancillary to your core interests, like Back to Work is a great example of that. Like I'm not a super productivity guru or anything like that. In fact, I'm, I'm a procrastinator by, by, by trade, if you will. <laughs> uh, but once you start expanding into these under, other universes, you start broadening your horizons and you start realizing, oh, there's a lot out there. And even in, in 2012, 2013, there was a lot out there. Obviously today, you know, everyone and their mother has a podcast and, and that there's a lot to be said that's good about that. Um, but it's also, you know, saturating a market where, you know, how do you know what's good and what's not? And I think that's part of the journey. But Nevertheless, it was just once I once I broke the seal of being a podcast consumer or podcast listener, then it was easy and fun 
to add a new show to the mix. And, you know, this is in the same way that you would like go to the app store early on in like the late aughts and you would just go see what's new because there was a handful of new things every day or, you know, maybe 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 new things every week or something like that. And it was manageable and you could rock it, you know, you could understand it. And, and again, this was at a time where podcasting was certainly a thing, but I don't personally think, and maybe your research says otherwise, but I don't personally think that it was, it was a thing, but it wasn't a thing, if that makes Mm. sense, you know, Mm. And and I feel like it wasn't until, you know, 99 PI really took off serial in particular, really took off that it became a thing. And, and I feel like I, as a consumer anyway, I feel like I came in just before all that happened. Again, this is all just my gut feeling. Mm. I, I would assume that you've done pr- plenty of research that will either confirm or deny, but that's the way it felt at the time was, yeah, this has been a thing for a while, but it, it's kind of taking off now and I'm not in on the ground floor, but I'm on the second or third floor. You know, I'm still in there early and, and there's, there's just something fun about that, especially when you're a dork like me. What you just said does in fact perfectly line up with the research. It was around that time. Uh, oh, good. With okay. <laughs> Serial particularly, 99% Invisible is another mm-hmm. big one. And of course, Apple adding its own separate podcasts app broken out from mm-hmm. the then iPod app. So, yep, totally correct. Now you've self-identified as a nerd and a dork, which fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. But this tech podcasting world that you're consuming and very actively uh, contributing to now, that's based on a tech fandom, right? You have this interest in technology. Can you tell me the story about how you actually came to be so committed to or involved in technology? Where does your tech fan story start? Uh, birth. <laughs> <laughs> I say that I say that somewhat flippantly. Um, there is a picture which I don't think I'll be able to dig up quickly, uh, but if, if you remind me, I will at least try. Hmm. But there's a picture of me using, I don't know how to describe it. It was an IBM computer but it, it it resembled, it was like an all-in-one, not too dissimilar from a Mac, but with like a crummier, more bulbous design. And probably a few years before the, before the Mac, I think. Mm. Uh, but there's a picture of me as a toddler standing on the front stoop of somebody's house. I don't even know whose house it was. Presumably ours, but I don't recall. Like playing with this computer and there's a cord going inside. So ostensibly maybe it was plugged in. I don't really know, or at least that's my memory of the picture. And I'm like, you know, a year and a half old or something like that. Now at that point, I'm sure I'm just, you know, mashing on keys and not really thinking about what I'm doing. But, uh, but there's a picture of me doing that. And, and again, that was when I was a toddler. I, I, I presume I wasn't able to speak at that point, but when it really clicked, uh, I, when I was a kid, I would say like late grade school, which, sorry, I'm talking to not an American. So like age 10, 12, something like that. I, I think it was around then that, that I started really getting into computers. This was, so my memory is garbage, but maybe a, a more accurate way of thinking of it is I remember windows 3.1 was like the most v- modern version of windows. And I was born in 82, so at 10, this is 92. So yeah, I think this lines up. I think I'm not completely full of garbage. But anyway, I, I, I wanted to play games on our home computer. Um, and we always had computers in the house because my dad worked for IBM for effectively my whole life. Now, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't a, a software dork. He was a numbers dork. And uh, he did a lot with finance and stuff like that. But he always had computers in the house because he worked for IBM and, and often would hold on to old computers. And so 
around the time, I think we had a 386 at the time. So again, I'm not sure exactly what year that is, but that can help you date if you care enough. And it ran DOS. And I remember I would ask dad, oh, how do I do this? How do I do that? And my dad is a very, very good man, but for all of his many good qualities, patience is not on that list. And so um, after a while, he eventually just said, well, just, 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 just read this. And he hands this like 10 year old, the DOS, like user's manual or owner's guide, or whatever it's called. I happen to have one sitting nearby. And of course, that's not very interesting for the listeners. But um, again, if you remind me, I will forget. But if you remind me, I can either scan it or send, find a link and send you a picture. Mm, but mm. I read the, the DOS 3.3, I think, uh, user's manual. And I didn't totally understand it, but I got enough that it was like, oh, okay, this is interesting. And so I was able to start running the, these games and getting in and out of these games via the command line, you know, via DOS, without needing quite as much help. And then eventually around this time, uh, Dad took an old 8088 PC. So this is like, you know, 82, 83. I'm like one year old when this came out. He took one of those and put it in my room. And this was, you know, before the internet was effectively a thing. I mean, I think it is, it was literally a thing, but not really a thing. Um, and so there was nothing, there's no phone connected to this. There's no internet connected to it. So it's hard to really have to worry too much about what's going to happen when it's like a 10 year old computer that's not connected to anything else in the world. You know, if, I, I say all this because if, I, imagining sticking a computer in my son's room, who was eight years old. Like, no, no, mm-mm, no, not doing that. <laughs> not doing that. Too dangerous. Uh-uh. I don't, I don't think I'm cool, but cool with that idea. But this is a very different time. And so anyway, so he put this computer in my room, and I think it had a 10 megabyte hard drive, if I'm not mistaken, which was like added in after the computer uh, had come out because it had a, what was it, five and a quarter inch literal floppy disks. And so I remember vividly, I wrote like a menu system in the DOS autoexec.bat that was like hideous red background with yellow text, which when you're nine or 10 years old was like so freaking rad. <laughs> and so I wrote this whole like menuing system so I could go into like, you know, hit one for games and then hit two for, I don't know, whatever applications a 10 year old might have, um, like a word processor, I guess, for schoolwork or something. And and I did this whole menuing system in, in, a ba- in a, one or more batch files. And I thought I was so cool. And so around this time, is when I really got into technology. Um, and dad has always had an interest in technology. Um, some of the things we share, some of the things we don't, but he's always been gen- generally interested in technology and technology thi- technological things and always had fun, like adult toys, if that makes sense. Oh, that's that poor phrasing. Had fun <laughs> toys for grownups. Uh, hopefully that's a little bit better. And, you know, like a stereo or in, he was, a, he was a mechanic briefly in a, in a prior life, so to speak. So he always was working on a car and always had fun tools for that. Um, he had a disc man before anyone I knew had a disc man and 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 silly things like that and so i'd always i I don't know if i was as much a tinkerer in the physical sense but i was always a tinkerer in the electron er, in the computing sense uh because i always wanted to mess about with what was going on on the computer and and then around 12 ish something like that it was around this time 10 12 years old that i met marco and we met um his family had a house on a on a lake in upstate new york as did mine and he would go there for the summers and i would come in from time to time over the summer and much to the dismay of our parents and our and my grandparents instead of going outside and playing in the water or in the sand or whatever we would sit there with whatever ancient 
IBM laptop dad had given me that's probably like four years old at this point. And we would do dumb stuff on the laptop, sometimes play games. I vividly remember that one of us, and I think it was him, brought us brought Visual Basic one on like two or three floppy disks. And we wrote or started to write like a choose your own adventure game, Visual Basic. Um, that was our task for one week over the summer. And I think we made it through like a screen. But <laughs> nevertheless, it was just fun. It was just always I was always tinkering. And I was not a very good physical tinker. Like when I would when I would help dad in the garage, I wasn't very good at mechanics. I'm still not particularly gifted at that. Never been good at like woodworking or anything of the anything of that nature. But I've always been pretty okay at tinkering with stuff on computers. And and especially at this age, this is when computers are starting to like really take over the world. And all the grown-ups in my life needed tutoring you know needed someone to tutor them on how do i accomplish the things that that society is now expecting me to do and i remember you know i would i would sometimes go to to grown-ups houses and like they would pay me 50 bucks like install a new router or something like that or whatever the case may be and so this was a constant thing from like you know, late grade school up through, you know, I, I studied computer engineering in college and I was a, a, a traditionally employed professional developer up until a couple of years back. Um, and I still do professional development work now, but I'm doing it for myself instead of somebody else. And and so it's been a constant throughout my entire life, uh, arguably one of the most constant things in my life, other than like family and a real appreciation of music, for, again, from the consumption side of things, I, I, the only thing I can play with any efficacy is a stereo. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, so, so like family music have always been constant. But a lot of my other interests, other than technology, will come and go. And, and, and But technology has always stayed true. That is very comprehensive. Thank you for that. <laughs> Sorry. You, you got you to stop me from running my mouth so much. That's perfect. The name of this show is Really Specific Stories, and you're living <laughs> up to the brief. <laughs> very, very specific, right? That's the idea. Now, along that story there along that continuum that you've shared with us there's a transition from ibm and windows to the mac (laughs) which is ultimately the thing that i think you could say fairly fuels your current show with john and marco yeah can you tell me about that transition and how technologically you moved to now fuel the content that you produce yeah so when I was in college, this was 2000 through 2004 at Virginia Tech, I needed to, for a couple of classes, run a, a distribution of Linux. It was something that was odd that almost nobody else used. And for the life of me, I can't remember what it was now. But uh, my, my machine, my main machine was a Windows machine. And I think I like dual booted into Linux from time to time to do schoolwork. So I was exposed to Linux and and the kind of Unix ideas, although I didn't have any freaking clue what I was doing. And then I graduated and I got a job and I was doing, my first job out of school was writing uh, C++ on DOS, which at that point in time was very unusual because it's 2004 and nobody was really using DOS anymore. And then my second job was writing uh, stuff in .NET, in in C Sharp and .NET, and a little bit of C++ as well. It kind of went back and forth. And at that point, I really, really, really loved the Microsoft stack in terms of development. Like C Sharp, I still to this day kind of miss. Visual Studio was very, very, very good, or was many years ago when I last used it. And then I got, uh, I moved from from Charlottesville, Virginia, to where I am now in Richmond, Virginia, and got a different job doing web development. And that was fine 
it was still used doing stuff on Windows, and that was fine. But I met a friend, a, a friend at, at, at this company, or a, a coworker became a friend, and he started needling me. You know, for web development stuff, you really probably want to get on a Mac. Like, you really should consider a Mac. And then a different friend at the same company who was a designer, what are you doing with that PC? Like, get, just get a Mac. Be a grown up. Get a Mac. <laughs> Meanwhile, um, this guy Marco Arment that I knew, he and I went back and forth on Tumblr, and you can still dig this up. Uh, he went back, he and I went back and forth publicly on Tumblr uh, about like, and I'm needling him, like, why would anyone buy a Mac? They're overpriced. They're not as good as PCs. Like, why bother? Like, there's just no point to it. <laughs> and I was running I, my primary machine at home was a ThinkPad, and I was you know an IBM laptop because of course, and uh, and I was running Ubuntu on it, and I want to say it was going from Hardy Heron to or no gutsy given to hardy heron i did you know an upgrade and just everything crapped the bed everything crapped the bed and at this point i'm like I, i'm out i'm out i i don't like windows because that's why i was running ubuntu full-time because i'm oh i'm over windows i use windows all the time at work and i don't like it ubuntu and linux like they're super fiddly and you can fiddle to the point that they're nice but they're super fiddly and i just i, I can't i can't with this anymore and at this point, this is many years ago now, Apple stuff really did just work. Uh, that isn't really the case anymore. But at the time, it was. And so um, I remember vividly, I watched, I want to say it was the 2008, I think that's right, the WWDC of 2008 to make sure they weren't going to release new hardware because at that point it was very up for grabs whether they would or not. And then I believe it was either that night or the next day i ordered a polycarbonate macbook as my first mac um, i'd already had an ipod or maybe even a couple of ipods at this point and so i knew apple stuff was pretty good but i'd been needled from marco i'd been needled from my friend jamie i'd been needled from my friend chris and i just was like all right fine let's give it a shot i'll buy the cheapest mac that i can get my hands on that's brand new and I'll see what happens. And if you go through those Tumblr posts for the first week or two it was garbage. Like, oh, where's the control panel? I don't know how to do anything. Like none of this works the way I expect. This is trash. And then after two weeks, it was like, well, I'm never going back again. Like I never want to touch Windows again. And I'm still a professional Windows developer at this point, mind you. Never want to touch Windows again. I am good. This is this is the future. This is the way I want it to be. And and that was, again, roughly 2007, 2008. I forget exactly when it was. And, and that's what started it. And then once I went down that path, as one is wont to do with Apple products, you know, the more the ecosystem you buy into, and that's, that's not fair. That's not unique to Apple, but it was perhaps more unique to Apple at this point, you know, than it is now. Once you're in the Apple ecosystem, like you want to go all in, baby, you want to, you want to get an iPhone, you want to get an iPod or, or if you don't have an iPhone, uh, you might even consider an iPod touch then fast forward two or three years. Oh, you bet your butt. I want an iPad. Like, you know, why not? And so I just got deeper and deeper and deeper into it. And then, like I said, you know, come 2012, Marco and John ended their podcast and I'm needling them about the car show next thing you know in 2013 this is you know all of four or five years after I went into the Apple ecosystem um, and now suddenly I'm hosting or one of the three hosts of the accidental tech podcast which we are very lucky to have become I think kind of a big deal within the Apple podcasting sphere now whether that pond is a little teeny tiny you know uh, a little teeny tiny pond that nobody knows about or if you consider it to be some big ocean i'll leave that for the listener to decide but whatever it is i think we're a relatively we're one of the larger fish in that pond which we're very lucky to be i love your characterization of the pond or the ocean 
either way, maybe it doesn't matter. <laughs> but yeah. that idea of audience or community, I'm fascinated to ask you this question because you really put quite nicely that once you enter that Apple ecosystem, and it may be other tech environments for other people, but for you, it's been Apple, you start to accumulate or gain more or enter more of the product spaces. You just keep mm-hmm. adding to that mm-hmm. family of products. You're also entering a community of people, whether that's yeah, oh, very much so. Apple fans or uh, the podcast audience or kind of co-hosts that you have. Can you tell me about your entrance into that community, Apple fandom and podcasting, and what it has kind of become for you? It's a very interesting question. So, and I and I kind of entered it in two different ways, right? I entered it as just someone who likes this stuff as a fan, and then I entered it as someone who, whether or not I deserved it, kind of demanded authority about it. And so, as a fan, it was it was fun to, in a way, it was really fun to be publicly wrong, because again, you can you can find you can find all this stuff still on last I looked, I haven't looked in years, but last I looked, this stuff is still all on my, yeah, I think it's there. It's still all on my Tumblr and you can watch this journey happen. And it was one of those times where, uh, what is, what is the turn of phrase? Somebody, I forget who it was, but somebody said, what you really want to have is very strong opinions held very, very loosely. Mm. I'm not saying that's right or wrong necessarily, but I think it's a very interesting perspective. Like believe what you believe and believe it strongly, but be willing to be wrong. I'm not necessarily very good about this for the record, but this was one instance where I was. I believed devoutly that Macs were overpriced, Apple people were were pretentious losers, and (laughs) there was no way I wanted any part of that. And then I experienced the the apple ecosystem and suddenly i became one of those pretentious losers i i think it was very fun to discover and at this point i'm you know 23 years old 24 years old to discover something new to me you know it's it's not that common Uh, once you reach adulthood or maybe it's just not common for me but it's not that common to find something that's just truly new and really friggin exciting and Yes, again, it makes me a super nerd that a different computing platform was really exciting, but it was like as much as I snark, it was genuinely very exciting. And it was so cool to have to to steal, you know, Steve Jobs's line to have a bicycle for the mind, to have a tool that was just there and it was there in all the ways I wanted it to be. It was there where I needed it, how I needed it, when I needed it. It would just made my life so much better and easier. And again, like that sounds kind of kooky when I'm talking about a freaking computer, but it really did make my life a bit better. And so to find this community and to make friends amongst, as they called them, the jackals you know, on the five by five chat room, to make friends and become a part of this community as a fan was super duper fun, especially because at this point, you know, Apple was definitely on the rise, but but again, I think I caught this one not at the th- ground floor, not at the third floor. I was maybe like the 20th, 30th, 40th floor of this like 100-story skyscraper that's still adding floors to this day, but uh, to beat this analogy to death. But, um, but I, I was there early enough that it was not that common to find professional developers using Macs. Like this is around the time that all the professional developers said, oh, maybe this Mac thing ain't so bad now like designers were way ahead of us and like print people were way ahead of us but Mm. developers were just really embracing it 
And so it was just cool to be able to be there and to like evangelize to friends and family that were like, oh, wait, you really like that Mac? Like, isn't a fortune? Well, it is kind of expensive, but you know, you don't have to reload it with a new version of Windows every six months. You know, there's something to be said for that. And then, you know, again, fast forward to 2013 and suddenly I am by force, by will or by, by earning it, I don't know, or some combination of the three. I'm an authority on it. You know, again, I feel bad because I don't want to, I don't want to sound like I'm really tooting my own horn, but whether or not I deserve to be on that show, which I still 10 years later carry a little bit of guilt about, I was in a position of authority in this little pond in which we swim. And that was a very weird and kind of chilling and unusual and awkward experience. And I think had I stopped to really think about it, it would have been far more distressing than it was, but because it did happen accidentally as silly and cliche as that is, I was able to just kind of back my way into it by accident. And that I think was what kept me sane and what kept me from really freaking out about the whole thing. Accidents are interesting. And (laughs) what I am interested to know though, is this transition to becoming an authority as you said, or having a voice in this community and having a successful podcast that people listen to, what has it been like to have this long running show? And can you give me an insight into the making of it and what you get out of it? Uh, Yeah. Well, yes. Um, It's been surreal. I, I mean, when I, when I started ATP, it was just my wife and me. We, we had no children. Uh, I was working, where, where, where was I at that point? I was working as a consultant, as a part of a consulting firm, as a consultant doing Windows web development. And I had known John for a couple of years, and Marco, again, I had known for quite a long time. Now, 10 years later, almost, Aaron and I have two children, the elder of whom is eight years old. I've been self-employed for, what is it, four years now? Yeah, just about four years now. Uh, I I don't do any consulting of any sort anymore. Um, I have a couple of apps in the App Store, which I briefly had something really silly in the App Store many years ago, but these are like legitimate, I like to think decent apps. Uh, again, I don't, it's hard, it's hard to say what I'm going to say without sounding I can't, without sounding like unappreciative, but ultimately I get to, for a living, in order to put food on the table, I get to talk to two of my best friends for three hours a week. How unbelievably, impossibly lucky and blessed am I that that's what I get to do for a living? Other other things happen as well. I have another podcast with another dear, dear, dear friend of mine. I have a couple of, of iOS apps, like I just said, but what puts the food on the table is the accidental tech podcast and the sponsors and the listeners and the members of that show. And to be able to say that, well, what do you do for a living? Well, I talk to my friends and I, I I make a okay living off of that. Like when I, when I ask what, when I get asked what I do, it's hard to answer that because I almost feel like I'm a lottery winner. That's just cruising. Like I take the show very seriously. I don't mean to paint it otherwise, but I still remember very vividly what it's like to go to a nine to five job. And there's nothing wrong with that. I did it for a long, long time, but it's nice not to have to do that. You know, (laughs) like it's a pretty, it's a pretty cushy life to be able to do what I do and choose how I spend my day or what, what I'm working on during the day. And I'm incredibly, incredibly lucky that I get to do this at all 
and that I get to do it with two incredibly, incredibly close and dear friends. And I hope that I never, ever, ever lose sight of that because not a lot of people get to say these things. So what does it mean to me? It means freaking everything because it's provided freaking everything. I mean, not in the literal sense, of course, like ATP didn't provide my children, but it certainly feeds my children. And that's such an incredible gift. And I hope that I never get jaded about what a gift that is. And I always, in the back of my mind, I always worry if today is the day that ATP just disappears or, you know, one of us gets hit by a truck or suddenly one or all of us get canceled for something we maybe legitimately did wrong or maybe didn't. I don't know. But it weighs on me because I don't feel like it's fair for me to be as lucky as I am. And I hope that I'm putting enough good in the world, both through ATP, through my children, through my wife, through my interactions with everyone. I hope I'm putting enough good in the world that I've earned it, if that makes sense at all. I don't know. I can talk about you know the production and the nitty gritty of it, but is there anything... You, does that make sense? Like, am I, am I adding, is this adding up at all? It makes perfect sense. Uh, I'm really registering from you that there's a lot of positive feelings and how it's enriched your life or essentially funds your life now as well. But oh, absolutely. you've also shared, mm-hmm. and I'm appreciative that you share this, that more, not negative, but more maybe self-aware or reflexive feeling of guilt Yeah. because, you know, there is fortune. So I understand what you're saying. I suppose tying into that production element, you've mentioned that you get to talk to your friends as your job, which is great. That's an mm-hmm. element of fun or enjoyment or tying to your fandom, but then it's also putting food on the table. So whether you characterize it as work versus leisure or obligation versus fun, how do you wrangle with that idea of balance? How do you think about your identity and your day-to-day undertakings when you're doing this? <laughs> yeah. It, it, again, it's an interesting question. Um, I mean, it is still work. It is easier work than a lot of other people have. And and I'm not trying to say that to, to show off. I'm just trying to be, again, appreciative of what I have, but it is still work. And all three of us take it very, very seriously. In 500, what did I say? 508 episodes? In 508 episodes. And again, we, we didn't, the first handful, the first 10 or 20 were not weekly, but whenever we decided to go weekly, which I want to say was about April of 2013, ever since that time for nearly 10 years now, All three of us, with one or two minor exceptions, all three of us have released an episode of ATP every week without fail for 500-ish weeks. That doesn't happen if you don't give a crap. And we very much give a crap. I'm not saying the way we handle it is the only way to handle it. Obviously, other shows that are excellent, like Connected is a great example. The hosts on Connected, they're in and out each week. And I'm not trying to say that there's anything wrong with that at all, but we kind of accidentally fell into this routine of all of us will be there every week. And that oftentimes is easy because we record at about eight o'clock at night on Wednesday nights every week. But what happens if somebody's on vacation? Well, we're either going to like double up on a week or somebody's going to have to take podcasting equipment on vacation and they're going to have to find a place to do it. That's quiet. That's alone. And you're just gonna have to deal with it. And I've had to do that many times. And that's because we really, really give a crap. Marco was extremely reluctant when we added membership and when we were trying to figure out the membership perks, Marco was extremely reluctant to add what we call the bootleg, which is, you know, moments after the show is done recording, we'll upload a version of the show that is completely unedited. It has 
some of us, usually me, swearing. It has <laughs> coughs and burps and things like that. Uh, it has where one of us will say something and say, oh, let me try that again. All of that's in the bootleg. And I think it kind of killed Marco to be willing to release that. And I say this because Marco cares that much about the edit. We do too. John and I do too, but we're, we're not doing the edit. So that's Marco's baby. And it absolutely destroyed him, I think, for a little <laughs> while to let this unedited mess into the world. Now, I like to believe that Marco isn't editing the show within an inch of its life. You know, it's not a serial. It's not a 99 PI. For the most part, what we say ends up getting released. But Marco takes it seriously enough that he will clean it up as reasonably and with as, as deft a hand as he possibly can. And he's proud of that. And he should be because he puts in a lot of work because he gives a crap. Mm -hmm. John and I, you know, John has been kind of has, since he went independent has kind of become the merchandise King and has made incredible <laughs> designs for t-shirts and mugs and things like that. He worked with our dear friends at studio neat to create this thing we call chicken hat, which is some winter hat that he had from 30 years ago that he hasn't been able to find a duplicate of. So he made one. <laughs> He, he's been doing a, ph a phenomenal job with the merchandise and I've been handling a lot of the, like the show notes are typically my work and Marco will edit them. Um, I'm doing a lot of the liaising with our uh, ad salesperson and trying to insulate John and Marco from that. So they don't have to deal with it. And we all kind of backed into these roles accidentally. Um, but we take them very, very seriously and we don't mess about. And, you know, John sat out for one episode deliberately because we had a host swap with Rocket, which is another great program on Relay FM. And we had Christina Warren, who is now at GitHub, but at the time, I think it was at like Mashable or something. Um, she came in and did an episode with us. Uh, one time, Marco lost his voice. And so there was a combination of his wife, Tiff, sitting in and also the like speak or say command on his Mac also getting dubbed in from time to time. But other than those two, those are the only times, to the best of my knowledge, in 508 episodes that all three of us weren't there. And we have released every week for, you know, 490, 500 episodes. And we do that because we give a crap. And sometimes we're later in the week than, than others. Sometimes we're recording two or three episodes in the same week. Our summer times are a mess because we never coordinate when we're going on vacation. And so summertime is always a disaster for us. But we make it work because we care and we care that much. And I like to think, and I hope that that comes through in the finished product, even in the bootleg. I hope that that comes through because we'll reboot something that maybe some other podcaster wouldn't really think twice about, but we'll reboot it because we want to get it right. Uh, we'll reboot it because we, we realized, Oh, I think we've misgendered somebody and, or something like that. And Maybe other people wouldn't care, but I'll, you know, I'll do it. John will do it. Marco will do it. We'll say, oh, no, 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 just let me, let me, let me do that one again. And Marco will find it and we'll put it in, he'll put in the right one in, in, in the, in the released version of the show. And it's just because we care. And, and I think the success story for the accidental podcast, if there is one is just really, really giving a crap a lot, giving a real now this is already good this, this maybe i should phrase it differently giving a real big crap is probably not the right way to phrase it <laughs> we really really care we care a lot and and i again I, I hope that that shows i think it really does and over 500 episodes is a huge commitment what you said in there was very interesting to me about you do the show notes there's ad sales liaison there's merchandise there's a bootleg and a membership 
You're called the Accidental Tech Podcast because it's a podcast and audio is arguably the core experience. That's what you're making and that's what people come for. But there are all of these other things that contribute to the experience or that are hyperlinked to, et cetera, et cetera. How do you think about the role of all of these things in your mantra of giving a crap? What What's the importance of all these extra things that you do? Yeah, I think... I mean, to some degree, this is a business. So I don't want to. I don't want to pretend, sit here and pretend like we're not thinking about how can we make money and more money because it's a business. Like, uh, it's not altruistic or anything like that. But keeping in mind that it's a business, there are ways that we can make money that are kind of jerky ways, and there are ways that we can make money that are kinder uh, ways. So a great example of this is when we decided. And I believe it was the spring of 2020, if memory serves, we decided, okay, you know, ad sales are absolutely tanking because, you know, coronavirus is real, as it turns out, uh, despite what some Americans think. Uh, coronavirus is real. Um, of course, everyone, every company, when when they're under financial pressure, the first thing to go away is their ad budget, their marketing budget. So our ad sales were tanking. And we didn't know if this was going to last for a, a day, a month, a week, a year, 10 years, whatever. So we decided to do membership. Our good friends at the Dubai Friday podcast, which is one of my favorite podcasts, the way they handle membership and they do it through Patreon is they have a released version of the show every week. And then they have what they call the after show, which is basically a second entire show every single week. And you only get that second show if you are a member of their Patreon. And so when we were thinking about doing our own membership and it wasn't through Patreon, but it was effectively the same idea. Well, the obvious answer is, well, you know, in our show, you, we do an hour, an hour and a half, two hours, and there's a theme song, and then we'll go another anywhere from five to 50 minutes in what we call the hour after show. So the obvious answer is, well, obviously we charge for the after show. You know, we, we tell people, well, sorry, the after show is now for pay only. And I, I think one of us said that to the other two, and immediately all three of us were like, nope, that's not going to work. It's not going to work because then we're taking away something we've been giving away for free. We're taking it back and saying, now that's, that, that's ours now. And you can pay to have it, but that's ours. And that's, that would be a real jerky thing to do. See Twitter as we're recording this, which is <laughs> a total mess right now. But um, you know, you're taking something that was free and you're asking for money for it. And, and that, I don't think that's fair. And so we decided, okay, we, we need to be additive with all the things that the membership provides. So membership provides a, a new version of the show that's without ads. Membership provides the bootleg. Membership provides a, a small discount on merchandise. And as of episode 500, the membership will provide a very small run of completely out of the timeline one-off episodes. And so to celebrate episode 500, uh, the three of us recorded three individual episodes where we we one of us picked a movie and all three of us talked about that movie so we did these three like bonus episodes but we could have done bonus episodes on swift or swift ui we could have done bonus episodes talking about i don't know the newest apple stuff but we didn't want to do that because that felt like we were taking away from our bread and butter and our bread and butter is the show so again we wanted to do something that was additive and occasionally we'll talk about you know pop culture and media and stuff on the show but that's not our bread and butter so we didn't think it was unreasonable to charge for this thing that first of all not everyone would necessarily find interesting and second of all is completely out of the quote-unquote timeline like i said we 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 felt like that was the right way to handle it and i think that's been the case with all of these different roles and things that we've done you know with the show notes 
I don't know how to verbalize it, but I try to make sure that anything that I think your average listener may or may not know about, will have a link in the, in the show notes. And especially the things that we're actively talking about, like your web pages or tweets or what have you, that should all be in the show notes. And, and there's a bit of an outline to it. And, and I think that that's important because for me as a consumer, I don't generally care for this kind of a show anyway. I don't care for just a list of links, just a single depth list of links where every link is peer to every other link. That's how we handle it on Analog, which is the show I do with Mike Hurley. But that's a very different show where I don't think it's it's a problem. For a show like ours, I, I really think it's nice to have a bit of a hierarchy and a bit of a, 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 a more than just a just a list of links. And so I take that seriously. With the merchandise, we always want to do something that we think will be fun for our listeners, that we think would be appealing enough that they would want to give us you know more of their hard earned money. And we want to do it with we want to do it with a partner that makes nice stuff. And and Cotton Bureau does really great work. It stinks for non-Americans because shipping from Cotton Bureau to anywhere else in the world is a fortune. And and the products are not cheap either. And if I were a listener, I would assume a thirty-five or forty-dollar T-shirt. Well, we must be taking home twenty, thirty, 30, twenty or thirty bucks of that. We are not. We are getting quite a bit less than that, like well under $10 of a $35, $40 t-shirt. We were taking very slim margins because these things are so darn expensive and we respect our listeners enough that if we, if we're expecting you to part with $35 and again, this is for Americans, for Australians, it's even worse for Europeans. (laughs) You know, it's just as bad. Uh, if we, if we expect an American to part with $35 of their money for a freaking t-shirt, then we're not going to put another 10, 20, $30 of our own profit on top. You know, we, we will take a little bit because it's a business, but we're not going to take a ton. And so with all of these things, we really try to make the decision with respect for, for our fans and for the people that, that give us their time, because ultimately money is a precious resource, but there is nothing more precious than time. And our show is not short. If you're going to spend two to three hours with us every single week, we better put together a pretty good show and we better put together pretty good merch and a pretty good membership program. Like this better not be a waste of your time because if it's a waste of your time, you're not going to keep listening. And both as someone who produces something that I'm proud of and that I want people to hear. And as someone who is a bit of a business person, like I want you to keep listening. I absolutely want you to keep listening. And so, yeah, it's again, it's just about giving a crap and really, really caring and trying to put forward the best product that the three of us are capable of doing. You know, other people may be able to do with video and, you know, do fancy stuff on YouTube or Twitch or what have you. That's not necessarily us, but for us, we're, we're doing the best product we possibly can. You talked about having different roles there. You've called yourself a business person. You're a podcaster. You're a tech enthusiast. You're a producer. You're a listener. Mm-hmm. These are different personas and roles that you have in different spaces. <laughs> yeah. And you've also said that just then at the end of your response that YouTube and Twitch isn't really you or the three of you, mm-hmm. right? You've chosen this space through RSS delivered audio files. Can you tell me a little bit about maybe what that technology means to you and how you end up thinking about interaction with fans and your audience, given the technology that you've chosen to use? Yeah, it, it RSS and, and, and pod, traditional podcasts, not the podcasts you find that are exclusive to Spotify or whatever, traditional podcasts. And I think X, Sirius XM, which is satellite radio here in the States, I think they do similar stuff. Traditional podcasts that just use RSS. 
it, it's a very limiting technology and form factor isn't really the right term for it, but for lack of a better way of describing it, it's a limited form factor, but that kind of forces you to get really creative. Um, we know almost nothing about our listeners and I kind of prefer it that way. And that sounds obnoxious, but hear me out. I don't want to know that a 25 year old in Sydney is listening to our show. Like I, I personally, I don't want to know that. I think that's creepy and I, I'm not interested in that. And to some degree, you know, just by virtue of where these files are downloaded from, we, we have some amount of analytics, but we, the three of us never look at it. Um, we look at how many downloads we have because that's kind of the, the currency of podcasting, but we don't look at where they're coming from. Really. We don't really do any of that. And, and RSS kind of prevents you from getting too creepy. Obviously there's technologies that people have come up with that allow you to get somewhat creepy. Like dynamic ad insertion is a great example of this. DAI is where, you know, you have a podcast and, and it's using some server side software. You know that at 14 minutes into the show, that's going to be an advertisement. Well, when I download it from Richmond, Virginia, they look at their list of you know advertisements that have been recorded and they say, oh, we have a hospital system in Richmond that has recorded a, sh- a sponsorship with us. For Casey, or well, for you know one two three four five six seven eight nine ten, whatever that listener is, yeah, you know, we're gonna we're gonna insert dynamically this ad, or we're going to dynamically insert this ad at fourteen minutes. And so you know, I'm listening to ninety nine pi. It's talking about you know generic national advertisers, and then all of a sudden, fourteen minutes in, hey, have you li- gone to such and such hospital in downtown Richmond? It's great. You know, it says Roman Mars of all people, <laughs> and that's that's gross. Like that's really gross. I understand why people would do it because that's how you make more money you know the better the the more targeted an ad is the better the chance that the person listening to it will act upon it but it's gross i don't like it i don't like it as a consumer i don't like it as a producer it's just gross and rss for the most part makes that either hard or impossible dynamic ad insertion works via RSS. So it's not completely out of the question, but it's not like Spotify where they know all the things I've ever listened to, both music and podcasts. They know where I am. They know how often I listen, how, for how long I listen. Like I don't know any of that as, as one of the producers of ATP. I know nothing of that. And I prefer it that way. It's hard for me to verbalize. And I think Marco would do a much better job of this because he feels this in his bones, but I'm not a super zealot for the open web. I think there's a time and a place for it. And I think that there's a time and a place for something like a Twitter or a Facebook or what have you. But I think it has been an extremely happy accident, not to beat that word to death, that RSS has been the underpinning of, of podcasting as an industry because it's kind of a great equalizer. You don't really need anything to start a podcast. You need a server where you can stuff a file that will be able to emit an RSS feed. You don't even need a website, technically. You just need a server that will spit out an RSS feed and files when they're requested. That's it. That's why you have your brother and your uncle and your sister and your aunt and everyone under the sun has their own podcast, which as someone who makes a living from podcasting, I don't love that because that's more competition for me. But as a listener... And to some degree as a producer, I love that because it's very freeing that anyone gets the opportunity to do this. And one would hope that those who are very good at it 
maybe they have five listeners when they start, but if they stick with it, if they're consistent, if they get better and better, that five listeners can become 500, 5,000, 50,000, 500,000. And suddenly you're making a living from podcasting. And, and the fact that there are so few gatekeepers to this, I think is extremely, extremely powerful and very, um, maybe this isn't the right word for it, but very democratic because it, it lets, it lets everyone have a chance. And I, and I really, really, really dig that. As a producer, you mentioned earlier that you've gone independent. I don't know if you would use that word, but yeah. you said that you're released from the strictures of nine to five. <laughs> what does independence mean to you in terms of running your working day or the creative stuff that you put online? It's freeing, but it's also terrifying because you don't have a master to please. And so the only person you have to please is the person in the mirror, strictly speaking. And depending on the day, the person that I see in the mirror can be super forgiving about spending a little too long reading the novel that you you know were reading yesterday or a little too long going shopping and on a Tuesday morning instead of, you know, on a Saturday morning or something like that. But uh, ultimately being independent frees me up to take ATP and all my other endeavors, analog, my apps, to take it so much more seriously and put the time and effort that I think they deserve into it. And that's always changing. Like uh, a few months ago, uh, and I don't think I've shared this publicly, but a few months ago, I was talking to my, my dear friend, Mike Hurley, who again, I do analog with, and I forget exactly how he phrased it. He was very gentle about it, but he basically said, you got to take ATP more seriously. And you say too often, why well, didn't get a chance to read this? And at first I was like, oh, p- piss off. Like, that's not true at all. And then I got thinking, no, he's onto something here. And it occurred to me that I was being a bit negligent and I wasn't doing that deliberately, but I, ultimately I was being a bit, a bit ne- negligent and I wasn't giving enough of a crap. And so being independent left me, afforded me the ability to treat Wednesday as that's ATP day. I am recording that evening, but in the morning I'm going through the show notes and I'm making sure I am pretty darn familiar with everything I'm potentially going to be talking about that evening. Now this has been ruined by John being independent because now at all times during the day, he's going in there and rearranging things and moving (laughs) stuff around, adding new stuff on Wednesday afternoons. And it drives me bananas, but I'm trying anyway to give a crap, to give more of a crap. And I wouldn't be able to do that if I was working a nine to five. I wouldn't be able to take the Wednesday morning and afternoon to just sit there and browse the internet and make sure I'm caught up on all the things that we might be talking about. And so having that luxury is an extreme privilege that I can spend the time to hopefully make a better product and a better show for our listeners. But, you know, in the years and years and years and years before I went independent, in the, what was it, five-ish years before I went independent, I didn't have that luxury. You know, I, I could look a little bit during the day here and there, but I didn't have the luxury to really do that. And, and so the time I had would be after work when I'm supposed to be a husband and a father. And so I often legitimately just didn't have the time. But Mike was absolutely right to call me out. And, and, and that's the mark of a very good friend and confidant that he did so. And I think he, he made the show better by having pointed that out because I think, again, I wasn't doing it deliberately, but I think I was being negligent. And I like to think I've been much, much better about it after it took me probably a few days or a week to really give him the credit he deserved and understand that he was right and not just being a jerk. But, uh, but, but once, once it occurred to me how right he was, I like to think that the show is, is better for it. Look, I appreciate that honesty and transparency in that story that you shared, because I think you're right. I mean, 
doing a podcast for so long, maybe you could get comfortable. Not that you were getting comfortable necessarily, but it's good to have that feeling oh, totally. of aspiration or, or goal or improvement, wanting to improve stuff. Mm-hmm. So given even what you said before about the changing nature of the community and the open web, you alluded briefly to changes at Twitter, which are very fun and disturbing at the same time to watch. <laughs> Where things are going technologically within the medium, the communities themselves, you talk about this, you know, wanting to give a crap and do better. What are some things that you feel like you still have left to do or maybe places you want to take your own career or hobby or the show itself? Uh, with regard to the show, I'll answer in a roundabout way. I really, really love Upgrade, which is, uh, again, Mike Hurley and Jason Snell. Um, and they've been around near as long as ATP has. I forget exactly when they started. I want to say it was the end of 2014. I might be selling them short accidentally, but they've been around effectively as long as ATP. But Mike and Jason are, in my eyes, uniquely good at reinventing themselves. And they do it, reinventing maybe a bit dramatic uh, or overblown, but they're willing to, to mess with the format in a way that I think I'm willing to, and I think that Marco and John are willing to, but we're not as creative and we don't come up with these ideas, I think as well, or, or really just as well as Jason and Mike. I mean, look at ask ATP. We totally ripped that from, from ask upgrade, like a thousand percent. That was a straight rip from ask upgrade. I think we treat it a little bit differently because sometimes we get to it. Sometimes we don't. And that's honestly not really deliberate. It's just the way the show goes. But I think things like that, like they're, um, they, they have rumor roundup. That's been a newer segment where they talk about, you know, the rumors of, of the week and, uh, they, they have all of these different things that they do the summer of fun, you know, all these different things that they do. And, and I, I hate them for it because I wish I was better at doing that same thing. <laughs> and so aspirationally, I'm always thinking about what can we bring to the show to make the show fresh and new because I worry deeply that 10 years in that we are getting comfortable. You were saying this earlier that we're getting comfortable and we're not willing to shake things up. And I don't feel like that's an active choice for many of the three of us, but I I worry about it. I worry about it quite a lot because 10 years, even of a good thing, I can understand that being too much for anyone. And so I really, for, for ATP specifically, I aspire very much to try to be flexible sounds negative, but inventive maybe is a more positive way of looking at it to be willing to try new things and do different stuff. And maybe that's just for membership. Maybe that's for the main show. I'm not sure. We've had a lot of really, I think, genuinely interesting ideas of member specials we could do, but a lot of them take a lot of work and in some cases, a lot of money and I'm not sure if that's if that juice is worth the squeeze, but I hope that we can come up with something that is, again, additive, but also interesting. Uh, for me personally, here again, I guess this is the Name Your Heroes segment, even though that's not what you asked me. Um, I look at uh, my, my dear friend, underscore David Smith. He's nicknamed underscore because his Twitter handle was underscore David Smith, and so we all just call him underscore now. But um, I, I look at Dave and... He is one of the most prolific developers I've ever known in my life and very good at what he does. And he's released like 60 different apps over the span of 10 years or thereabouts. 
And it wasn't until app like 58 or 59 that he really had a massive hit. He's had hits before, but like a true proper massive hit uh, because he's the guy behind Widget Smith, which is very genuinely popular, even amongst regular people circles. And I don't think I'll ever get to that point by any stretch of the imagination, but I aspire to be more like him when it comes to my development work. I aspire to try things and throw them against the wall and see what sticks, which I guess is really what I just said about ATP as well. But I'm a man of routine and I'm a man of habit and I don't want to be, even though it's super comfortable, I don't want to be. And I guess in summary, I just want to not get complacent and I want to not just sit on my laurels and let life or work or anything just wash over me. I want to be an active participant who is actively tweaking and fiddling and trying to do what I can to make everything I do as good as it can be. And when you reflect on your history of podcasting, whether it's ATP or the other shows that you've done, what's a moment either on the show or contributing to a show that you feel particularly proud of? A key memory? Um, that's a really excellent question. I think there's a few with analog. I want to say it was episode five. It was one of the very first episodes we did, um, but we had Stephen Hackett, the, uh, the other co-founder of relay. We had him on and we talked about like really monumental times in all three of our lives. And for Mike, if memory serves, it was the loss of a family member uh, for Stephen, It was when his son was diagnosed with cancer. And for me, it was finally having our son because we had incredible troubles with getting pregnant and that episode was really hard to record for all three of us, especially so early on in the run of the show. And I haven't listened to it in a long time, but I think it is one of the best single episodes of a podcast that I've been a part of because it was really powerful. And we talked about stuff that really mattered, whether or not Twitter is melting down, whether or not Apple is putting too many ads in, in their iOS software, like that doesn't really matter. It's interesting and it's fun to talk about, but it doesn't really matter. Um, this stuff mattered. And I got a lot of feedback from people who are f struggling with infertility saying, oh my God, thank you for talking about this. I'm not alone. And I'm really, really proud of that. I'm really proud of us being asked if we could have Phil Schiller, who was the former, still kind of there, head of marketing for Apple, appear on ATP once. At the end of the show, I asked him a question about cars and it was immediately evident within just a moment that oh, I'm getting absolutely dunked on by Phil Schiller right now because he knows so much more about this than I do. And in a weird way, that was actually a career highlight for me, getting absolutely dunked on by Phil Schiller. But, and he wasn't tr trying to be a jerk or anything. It was just he knew so much more than me, and it was so obvious so fast. Um, but it was fun. And that was a real highlight. Another one, this was, I think, episode 96 of ATP, something like that. Uh, but John... John started talking about his window management, like how he manages the windows on his computer. And for the longest time in the, in the, sh in the chat room that we have when the show is being broadcast live, everyone would, would recommend titles uh, like the something of Syracuse County, because I believe hypercritical had an, ep an episode titled that if memory serves. And for years, for, for forever, every episode, it would be the something, something of Syracuse County. And every time I was like, no, 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 no. And I think I'm pretty sure Marco was on the same page on this. No, if we're going to do this, it's going to be at the right moment. Well, whatever the number it is, it's again, I want to say it was 96. It is called the windows of Syracuse County. And it was because that was, it was 96, the windows of Syracuse County, December 19, 2014. That, that was the time that we needed to deploy the of Syracuse County uh, uh, title because 
it was one of those things that we couldn't have planned it if we tried, but he started going deeper and deeper and deeper into his like window management strategy. And Marco and I are getting more and more and more dumbfounded and confused (laughs) and frustrated with like, because John devoutly believes that his is the one true way of, of, of managing windows. And it sounded like utter lunacy to Marco and myself. And and it was just such a hilarious moment. And one that I like to think really stands up again. I mean, this is the end of 2014. That's eight years ago, um, actually eight, eight years and a month ago. So we're, we're getting close to the eight year anniversary. Um, but it was such an incredible moment and it was so hilarious. And, and, and I'm proud of that because I think that that was ATP at its best. Not to say that, you know, we topped out at 96. It's all been downhill from there, but that's a great example of ATP at its best where it's just three people with, I like who, who I like to think have really great chemistry, just completely dumbfounded with each other. And it was just really, really fun and funny. And so off the top of my head, those are, those are three of my favorites. Well, I have to say, uh, not only was that also comprehensive, but I'm impressed that you managed to pull out specific episode numbers with some level of confidence. <laughs> well, only a little bit, only a little bit. I couldn't tell you what the Schiller one was actually, but I, 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 96 has been drilled into my head because it's such a just incredible, incredible episode. I'm not sure if I got the analog one right. Um, yes, I did. Episode five. So, hey, look at that. But I, it's just because they, 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 they were drilled into my brain because they were such such pivotal moments in my career and my life because they're these episodes are so important to me. I, I really think they stand the test of time, even all these years. I mean, the, the analog episode five was September of 2014. Apparently late 2014 was my time, baby. <laughs> but uh, maybe, I, maybe I've gone all downhill from there. But, uh, but anyway, they stand out as just such phenomenal, incredible moments. And, and it's, it's not you know because of me. It's, it's because of maybe me a little bit, but, but particularly all of my co-hosts. It's because of Mike and John and Marco and Steven on Analog um, and Phil when he was on ATP. You know, it was because of all of us that these were such shining moments. I think you've given such a fantastic overview and also a really specific account of your history in podcasting. You've covered aspirations. You've covered reflections. Is there anything that I haven't asked you about your experience what you do, where you're going that you would like to share with listeners? Oh goodness. That's a, that's a great question. I should have been prepared for. Um, I don't think so, but if, if you'll permit me to be the obnoxious American, go for it. (laughs) What have, what have you learned from your journey? Because what you're, you're quite a few episodes in now. Mm. And I think, I believe it's been made public and plain that this is, this is a research project, but it's also an entertainment project. So what have, what have you gleaned from this? Is it, has there been anything that surprised you about, you know, all of these conversations that you've had, or have they mostly been kind of what you expected? Uh, I'm more than happy for you to turn me into the interviewee for a sec, so we can go into that briefly. <laughs> all of these episodes that I'm building up here, with you included as a participant, are building to a final project, a final thesis, mm-hmm. right? So it's hard for me to say exactly that this is the set of findings, because we haven't done that yet. But sure, totally. along the way, uh, along the way, it's been very interesting to me just how much of the human aspect shines through when we're all talking about technology here, right? There are certain mm-hmm. things that we reveal about yourselves, and you've been very transparent and uh, honest about things on this show, and I'm grateful for that, grateful for previous participants who've done the same thing. But I suppose maybe the key thing that I've learned along the way is that willingness to shed this idea of perfection, right? This idea that we're all learning along the way 
Now, I haven't been a podcaster for as long as what you've been. I've been practicing in public, largely spawning from the origin of this project. My own two supervisors said, if you're going to research this, you, you should try your hand at it yourself. You've been listening. Why not do it? And it's apparent yep, yep, in what yep. you've been saying that, you know, there was a level of being accidental in what you did. There's learning along the way. So in making this hopefully open and accessible resource for fellow fans of tech podcasting or the medium at large, I hope that people walk away listening to you with this idea of I could do it as well. Yeah, I, I think that's extremely important and powerful. And ultimately, all it takes is a microphone and, again, you know, a server and, and, and a place to put your files and something to talk about. I, I think you, you struck something you said a moment ago struck me, and I don't think we've talked about it too much. Mm. And maybe this is, this is my parting thought, if you will. One of the things that I think is so powerful about podcasting is that most podcasts, at least that I consume, maybe this isn't true in general, but for the podcasts that I consume, most of them are not short. And that can be difficult when you're trying to listen to all the great shows, you know, that, that you want to that you want to enjoy. And sometimes you just don't have time for all of them. But because it's not YouTube where you only have the attention span for like 15, maybe 30 minutes at most. It's not a full-length movie, which is different in its own regard. It's as long as a full-length movie, but it's not typically as manufactured as a full-length movie. And so what I'm driving at in a roundabout way is that you get to really intimately know the people you're listening to. And what struck me about what you said was when you said it's the human element. I am in some people's ears for, you know, maybe 10 hours a month. And 10 hours a month doesn't seem like a lot, but that's a lot. Like that's a lot, a lot. And I like to think that I'm the same person privately as I am publicly. I mean, obviously some things are more are, are turned up to 10 and some things are turned down, but I'm by and large the same person. But what makes podcasting so powerful is that you get to really know the people you listen to week in and week out. And and you get to bond with them and you feel like, or certainly I feel like for the shows that I listen to, not all of whom I know, you know, I've never met Roman Mars, but I feel like I really understand Roman Mars. And that's, and that's actually a fairly manufactured podcast. And I, I don't mean to sound derisive when I say that it's just a different kind of kind of show than what I'm used to, but there's so many podcasts that I listen to that are, that are more like the ATP conversational kind of podcast. And I feel like I know these hosts, like, I feel like I know them. And I don't, but I do. And that human element that I don't know if I would go so far as to say is unique to podcasting, but I think is extremely strong in podcasting. I'm not much of a Twitch viewer, but I, I would, I could imagine that Twitch has a similar feel to it because you're watching and listening for so long as these people are playing games or whatever the case may be. But podcasting is semi unique in that regard. And and I think it's extremely, extremely powerful. And here again, you know, I'm inviting listeners who in a way, in a roundabout way, are kind of sort of friends into my world for, you know, two hours, three hours a week. And I want to treat my friends with respect. And I want and I hope that they see that. And I hope that comes through in the work that I do. But ultimately, it's so cool to be able to have on either side of the table, so to speak, to be able to have that kind of relationship. Now, negatively, it's parasocial. You know, it's, I know nothing about the listeners. They know everything about me, but it's still cool in, in a very different and weird way. And, and I think that that's one of the most powerful and awesome things about podcasting is that just by virtue of doing it and doing it regularly and having listeners who listen regularly, you get to have 
these incredibly intimate relationships, even if they are one way. And I've been lucky enough that I have never in my life felt terribly alone, but imagine if you're the only person in your town that really cares about Apple or, and I, and, and, and I mean, I know nothing about what this is like, but what if you're the only gay person that you know, and you're listening to a show like uh, two headed girl where the, where gender is explored in, in such an incredibly powerful and wonderful way. And I think having that feeling of community and togetherness, even if you're not actually together is such an incredibly powerful, wonderful, incredible gift that that humans have bestowed upon each other. And I hope that whenever podcasting goes away, because it will eventually one day, I hope that whatever replaces it brings that same communal feeling to it. And, and that same, to your point earlier, human aspect to it. Well, I think that's an excellent conclusion for this episode, if you agree. Oh, absolutely. That idea of community and whatever comes next the human is at the center so if you're happy to end there indeed i uh, think we'll wrap up so everyone listening i think no doubt knows who you are and can find you at uh, <laughs> atp.fm and there's also of That's course right. in the song you know where they can find you on twitter <laughs> indeed well who knows if there'll still be a twitter by the time you hear this but yes i'm casey list on twitter and on instagram my website is caseylist.com you can find analog at relay.fm slash analog spelled the correct way or the, the way that you would spell it um <laughs> or mike for that matter um but anyway yeah i won't even bring up temperature i know that's very oh that's a very sore subject let's not go there but it's but yes no it's it's been an absolute ple- pleasure i really appreciate you having me on and and i i can't wait to read a few words of your thesis and then realize I'm not smart enough to understand any of it. But, uh, but when the time comes, I hope you send it to me because I'm very, very intrigued by it. And I, and I hope, I, I hope I'm able to understand even but a, but a 10th of it. That's very lovely. And I'm sure you'll understand. I'm sure many will. So thank you, Casey. Yep. Thank you, Martin. I appreciate it.